This podcast contains explicit material that may not be suitable for all listeners. For those of you brave enough to stick around, enjoy the show. Welcome to the We Still Booze Podcast, brought to you by WideRightNattyLight.com, your one-stop Iowa State online blog shop. Throw me the bootleg and I'm gone. Then I take a few steps and I keep left and the people take a deep breath and I'm up in your end zone. 816 boys, we reppin' connected with Iowa State. Play out a position and it's checkmate if you hesitate. Welcome, Cyclone fans, to another edition of the Wide Right Natty Light Podcast. This is Austin. I'll be your, your host today. Uh, with me today will be uh, Matt. He goes by Cy Husker on the site. Uh, Matias, and then Kevin Fitzpatrick will be joining as well. Uh, our goal today is to kind of wrap up that Baylor game. Uh, a lot of you are probably just as frustrated as we are. There's a lot of signs for encouragement. But at the end of the day, a loss is a loss. Uh, and we're, we're going to kind of hash out what that means for the Cyclones going, going forward. Uh, before we get into that, though, Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review either on there, or go ahead and give us a comment on our blog post when you see this. Um, But at this point, we're going to go ahead and get started. So I'm going to bring in Matt first. All right, Matt, I want to know who you thought to be Iowa State's MVP last night in Waco. Hey, guys, thanks for uh, letting me crash this podcast tonight. And um, my MVP, this one's probably going to, draw some shade but I'm going to go with Deontay Burton and uh, I'm going to say him for a, a couple reasons one good one bad the bad would be um, him playing through a, that funk that we saw um, God I don't know if I've seen anything more frustrating in a long time than his three back to back to back missed layups um, I think that was early in the second half but I put him as my MVP just because I think down the stretch in the second half he really helped uh, helped us move the ball, which isn't always a strong suit. And I know at the end of the game, he kind of tanked that. But I didn't play through it. When we needed a three, he not only made it, but then he got the next bucket. Uh, and I actually think he, he was one of our better scoring options in the second half and kind of kept us in the game. And, and I think that was big for him, especially the way that he'd been playing. Um, that's that's all I got to say. Probably a controversial choice. Yeah, it's it's definitely not – not one that I would have chosen, but at the same point, uh, after you said a couple of those things, there are definitely some things he brought in the second half that we didn't see against Texas Tech and maybe as of late. We're going to get more into Deontay Burton here in a little bit because I think he's uh, he's a player that can be kind of hot or cold, and I would say it's going to need him to, to do what they want to do in March. Um, but at this point, uh, Kevin had tweeted out at halftime uh, who the fans wanted to see start the second half. Then he got all he got kind of pissed because everyone, uh, myself included, was tweeting in with uh, George Niang and Marcus Beiser, all-time greats. But I think uh, you're more along the lines of wanting to know who on this year's roster wanted to start the second half, correct, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Uh, I, I actually was tweeting that seriously. And then, of course, you know, a good 80% of the wider night tweets are usually sarcastic. And I think everyone interpreted it that way. So it was kind of both, I guess, to be expected, but at, at the same time, I was like, oh, I was, I was actually asking a question, and I was hoping everyone would give me their real answers, but um, from what I was thinking, uh, I guess I would have switched it up in the second half. I thought, um, 
I thought that Nick Wilder Babb had done a good contribution there towards the end of the first half. I thought keeping him in there, um, playing a little more small ball would have been good. And then um, with Deontay Burton with two fouls and him not having a great game up to that point, I thought that starting Solomon Young uh, might have been beneficial too because he was at least, you know, contributing down low a little bit, you know, playing some good D with Baylor's size. So I would have switched up the second half lineup. Um, as far as, you know, going forward, um, I'm fine with the starting lineup that we have been starting with uh, Burton and Bowie. Um, but, yeah, it's like Burton's kind of like that hot and cold guy. It's like if he has a great first half and he's, you know, being the beast that we've seen him be, like against Gonzaga in the second half, and, you know, when he can put the ball in the, in the hoop with like no one else, and by all means he should be out there on the court. But if he's the guy that's, you know, missing all those bunnies like Matt said, then, you know, I think he needs to ride some pine a little bit in the second half. So that's my thoughts on it. I'm going to ask you a follow-up question here quick, Kevin. Are you a, are you a believer almost every coach will start the game in their second half with their, their starting lineup, whereas instead of thinking of it kind of as a continuous 40 minutes and going with whoever is the hot hand, are you a believer in starting with the same starters as the first half, or do you think – coaches to maybe change it up a little bit more uh, to start the second half, especially when you got a guy that might be hot or cold on a particular night. Yeah, and um, that's kind of a tough question. Um, but I think last night, like I said, I would have switched it up just because, you know, it was obvious that our offense was flowing much better with uh, Wilder Bad out there. Um, I guess it's it's – it's a judgment call kind of thing. So um, I guess to, to answer your question, yes, I am of the opinion that if someone has a high hand, you should stick them in there and reward them for having a high hand. And hopefully they can continue doing that throughout the rest of the game. this point, we're going to bring in uh, Matthias. Uh, Matthias, I don't know about you, but I was pretty impressed uh, by both the Cyclones and Baylor last night. Baylor now, if they if they win on Saturday against Oklahoma State, more than likely be the number one team in the nation. Uh, Kansas might even slip in there at number two. Uh, so one and two in the Big 12. Do you think Baylor has a shot of ending Kansas's run this year, or I guess for that matter, anyone else in the Big 12, West Virginia, Iowa State, or do you think it's going to be same old Kansas uh, tearing down the nets in March? I guess we're really going to have to see how Baylor handles their first road, real road test at West Virginia. I think that's on maybe Monday or Tuesday next week. But as of right now, it kind of looks like it could be their – Baylor's are the best shot right now. Um, obviously, it's the Big 12, and a lot of things can change. And Baylor has shown that they can play anywhere against anyone right now. I mean, they've beaten Oregon, Michigan State, Louisville, and, and um, Xavier. So, they look to be the team that can do it right now. But obviously, like I said, things can change. and. There's a lot of fluidity in college basketball, but, you know, it's going to be Baylor-Kansas right now as we speak. So at this point, I think the the elephant in the room is the end-of-game struggles for Iowa State. Uh, you look back to, la- you know, last night they were up six with five minutes left. There were some errors down the stretch. There were some missed shots. There were some, some things that Baylor did well. Um, but it was kind of the same same rerun that we saw at the end of the Gonzaga game and at the end of the Cincinnati game with 
not being able to put the ball in the bucket uh, for the last couple minutes uh, when they really needed. They could have, you know, extended some leads in all those games and really put the pressure on those teams and closed out some wins. So I'm going to open it up here. I guess I, I got a two-part question, or maybe if you want to answer one or the other, I want to know what's, what's happening. Why, why isn't Iowa State maybe able to score as effectively as they are in the rest of the game? And then uh, is, this, is this on the coaches or is this on the players? I think they um, they kind of slowed it down there towards the end of the game. I think it was just in part because Baylor started to hit shots. I think they kind of wanted to stem the momentum a little bit just so they wouldn't have that a potential run by Baylor that would you know take the score way out of hand to where they couldn't compete towards the end of the game. And and I think we saw that that just knocked them out complete out of their funk there, especially on that last play. But credit to Baylor though they did defend that last play with you know down eight seconds there really well I mean they jumped out on the screen and then they didn't allow Monte to roll to the middle which is kind of looked like he tried to do but at the same time it, Bab and or not Bab but um, Naz's and um, Burton's kind of motions looked like he wanted them to go the other way or even Naz come off a screen the other way and hit a three or something like that so I, I think it was both a little bit that they're out of funk and then Baylor kind of guarded it a little ways but you know it is kind of you know disheartening a little bit that we've seen it against Gonzaga Cincinnati and now Baylor as well that they played well in all three games you know enough to be there to win it in the end I'll add to this um I think like we saw um all the tweets on Twitter filled in my timeline last night of Coach Brown getting really mad about the stoppage uh the officials did to put four tenths of a second back on the clock um and i think you know he has a right to be mad about that i mean it's the bird debate whether the officials should have done that or not but i mean if they get out and run a transition that's what that's what had gotten them into the lead um in that game and as we'd seen earlier in the season out of timeouts i guess this is my one gripe with coach prone is it, it seems like the team is never really prepared out of timeout situations so by all means, I'm sure he was pushing them to get it up the floor as fast as they could and not allow Baylor to get their defense set. So that was a really big uh, turning point there late in the game. Yeah, I don't I don't have much to add to that other than judging by um, what Prohm said after the game. He, it was kind of along the lines of, you know, we have, we have a play drawn up that I had told him to run in that situation, which is, the reason he didn't call a timeout, and I think what we saw in that last play was just kind of everything compounding, a bunch of problems all at once between the stoppage of play and those guys obviously misfiring on setting screens. Um, I, so, you, you know, it seems like they had a set play and just everything that could have went wrong did. But I still think in that situation that's where you should call a timeout. Um, I, I, once Monte gets into the half court, then you probably can't just because you're out of time. But to me it just seemed like a kind of a culmination of everything that could have gone wrong all happening at once and um, definitely it ended up definitely not being the way Prom had drawn it up. So I don't know if there's a whole lot you can do about that in that situation though. Now to me, Prom didn't necessarily call a timeout, but they did have, they did have some time there with that review. Do you guys think that was, I got a couple questions for you. Do you think that was enough time to, to draw something up? It sounds like some of you are thinking maybe he should have taken some additional time with the timeout. 
Um, and then my second question is, I think Matias mentioned slowing it down at the end of the game. This has kind of been a, a staple, not necessarily of just Prone's era, but even some of Fred's teams would do that. They're, they're scoring effectively. They're running up and down the court, and all of a sudden you get a lead with three minutes left, and it's try and find your best shot, and it usually results in a you know a three-pointer or, or some sort of a floater with under five seconds on the shot clock. So do you think – I want to hear from – it sounds like Matt maybe said that we should have called a timeout. I want to hear from the other two. Should we have called a, an extra timeout on top of that stoppage? And then do you agree with slowing it down with the lead as you get towards the end of the game? Kevin, you can go uh, first. All right. Um, I guess I can't remember how many timeouts we had. If we had one, then uh, – do you do either, any of you guys know how many two. timeouts we had? We had two timeouts. Had, okay, two. then after, then I probably would have called timeout then, yes. If we'd only won, then I probably would have saved it just in case they would have gotten in a trap or something like that. Um, but, I mean, if the clock's going to stop already, then, yeah, I mean, you might as well drop a play that you at least have a really good chance of working. Um, I guess that's my opinion on the matter. I guess I probably would have called timeout too, but at the same time, sitting here in the chair watching the game kind of felt like forever too. So, but I I figured he probably would have drawn up the same the same thing um, if they had called timeout again as well. Um, we don't know that for sure, but um, maybe they could have refined it a little bit more to have a little expanded ways of you know having a second option to go to as well. So probably the extra time could have benefited them all in that in the case of the way it. It turned out as well. All right. And no, the, I'll just, I'll the just game be, situation. Oh. No, I was going to say, I'll just be pessimistic for a second here and talk about end of the game situations. The, the Monte or everyone scramble for a shot late isn't new. DeAndre Kane used to do that all the time. Um, and, you know, it, he did hit a big shot for us, but that was um, a shot where he drove and got into the paint um, and made it. Uh, that would, you know, yeah. you know, I'm talking about the NCAA tournament. But if you look at the rest of the times we needed to get a bucket, how many times did George Niang dribble it off his foot or, uh, or stumble, lose it? Or again, now we've seen it with Monte Morris this year when he's trying to make his own shot, it doesn't really work out all that well. So I don't, unfortunately, this is nothing new for Iowa State. So I, I'm not really sure what the best way to remedy it is. I think, I mean, the, I guess the, I best... think the difference. Go ahead. I think the difference between. Uh, those teams and maybe this team is that a lot of times, especially that DeAndre Kane year when they had uh, Edgem and George, it to me, and I I could be completely off on this, but to me it seemed like they were always in the double bonus at the end of the game, um, and they were to the point where when when they needed a shot, DeAndre Kane might have drove it in there uh, with his head down a little bit. He might not have made it, but he might have got to the line. Now you're getting, you're getting one point maybe or, or two points out of those possessions at the free throw line, whereas I don't I don't think Monte necessarily has that same ability that DeAndre did uh, to, to draw fouls like maybe he and, and George both did. I think that's one thing that maybe this team is missing is that guy that has the ability to, to drive it in and draw a foul and maybe finish at the, at the same time. But, Matias, what, what were your thoughts? Well, I guess to piggyback off that, if you think since maybe – that they're not shooting a higher percentage off the free throw line, that maybe they're willing to not drive it in as hard like that and risk taking a foul, I guess, because they don't want to miss at the free throw line because they feel like they have a 
a better chance of making a shot other away from that? I would. I would certainly hope. Go for it, Kevin. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I was. I was think that you know, the more the more fouls you can draw, the more free throws you get. I mean, yeah, they're not shooting very well, but at the same time, I mean, it's Iowa State, and you, you're expected to make your free throws. So, I don't think, you know, them shooting poorly should scare them from you know going and drawing contact by any means. And if you think about it, uh, shooting shooting poorly from the free throw. Uh, let's say you're a, you're a 50% free throw shooter, and obviously one and one factors in this a little bit. But if you've got a two shot foul and you're a 50% free throw shooter, that's still that still should be you know one point per possession, which is what they ended up with in the Baylor game. If you're any better than that, that's over a point per possession, which most teams would take against a, a top 10 offense. You know, it, it's it's a shot that there's not a seven footer or a Jonathan Motley in your face. Uh, it's unguarded. And I think uh, it's one of the most effective shots. And I, I think it's something that they should try and do more of. It's easier said than done, but I think they could be scoring more from, uh, from the free throw line. So, but I want to, I want to shift gears here a little bit and I'm going to, I'm going to start this with Matt because he kind of dropped the bombshell there and, and said that Deontay Burton was his MVP. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of ask him first, uh, Deontay has started the year kind of as a leading scorer, it looked like, in that Gonzaga game. Uh, you know, he looked like he could have all Big 12 type of potential. Lately, he's kind of fallen out of, out of favor with the fans and maybe even prone a little bit as of late. Uh, is, is Iowa State a better team with him on the floor, and how do you think they can utilize him going forward, Matt? I think we still are a better team with him on the floor just because of the potential he can, you know, potential for big plays and offense when he is on. Uh, so I think with that, you've got to kind of put up with the, with the lulls, but I think Prome has got to get uh, his minutes figured out one way or the other, whether it's on the court all the time or, or giving him breaks. And it seemed like last night he was willing to let him play through some things that may have been the right call last night, but I'm not, I'm not sold on that in, in, in its entirety. But, you know, I think one way or the other, it, it's got to be figured out. For example, Merrill Holden, he's, Role has been kind of settled. He's not seen the, the floor much. Um, and I think Burton's going to have to to reach a point where Prohm's either going to have to play him all the time or or manage his role a little bit. So, uh, and unfortunately, that's up to Deontay. That depends on which Deontay Burton we see on a nightly basis. Uh, and that's what's been, you know, inconsistent with him is not what he brings to the team. It's missing layups and not running back on. Uh, on defense or, you know, not playing defense at all. And that's what's probably been the most disappointing with him. So personally, I think it's Burton on the floor all the time just because of what he can do when he's on. But again, that's going to be completely up to Deontay Burton. I agree. I agree with that. Just, just because of, you know, we've seen him score. We've seen him take his time on shots, make good shots. It's just, you know, last night there early on in the second half, you know, he's throwing up layups that look like he's just trying to, you know, make them look cool. Um, we're not here to make things look cool. We're just here to, you know, win basketball games, and that's not a winning basketball play. So, I mean, if, if he just makes a smart basketball play, he's going to be a good basketball player. So it's just – it's not it's, – it's all in his head, I think. It's just a matter of what he wants to be that night. So good Deontay Burton keeps showing up, you know, kind of like, you know, second half was, you know, there showed signs of it. It's just you need it more consistently, and I think if that continues – where, you know, he's like Gonzaga or second half Baylor, it's 
and, you know, he definitely makes this team better. I mean, he, he gives them another scoring option, whether because he can get to the lane or, you know, whatever it may be. It's just he's got to make those close shots because he's our – right now he's showing to be our best scoring threat on the inside. I think one thing I would – going back to what we were talking about free throws earlier, the thing that I'd like to see Burton add to his game is just, you know, attacking the rim as opposed to being kind of a finesse player once he gets in the lane because Burton – is built to be like that DeAndre Kane kind of guy where he goes in and he draws the contact and he gets to the free throw line. Because he's a decent free throw shooter. So, I mean, if he's not going to be, you know, making those finesse layups, then at least draw some contact and get some points out of it. I think at times it seems like Deontay has – there's a lot of times where it looks like he's about to go up and try and dunk it. He changes his mind in midair then tries to lay it in, now he comes up short. Or maybe maybe the other way around, he, he's thinking about laying it up. And I don't know what it's like to get that type of vertical jump, so I can't really relate. But I guess uh, maybe when you get a little higher than you're used to, uh, you think you can dunk it. And so it seems like he's got kind of caught in between in some of those. But then lately, it's, it doesn't seem like he's been attacking the rim uh, like maybe he was at the beginning of the year, which, like, like you said, Kevin, if he can just start attacking the rim and – Maybe that's he, he tries to dunk everything that's that's close. He's surely going to at least get fouled uh, or make some of them. But I think the the big difference between uh, good Deontay and, and bad Deontay is is finishing at the rim. And if he can finish at the rim, I think you can live with some of the mistakes, um, some of the turnovers maybe, or the defensive lapses. But if he's not scoring, uh, to me, there's there's not a lot of benefit of, of having him on the floor if he's not going to be a threat. Uh, offensively, because I think the, there's better options on defense with uh, Nick Babb and, and Solomon Young. So we're gonna we're gonna switch to the to the guy that took the last shot of the game, uh, Monte Morris, preseason Big 12 Player of the Year. A lot of a lot of us, uh, myself included, maybe thought that he'd be able to pick up some of the scoring threat uh, after George Niang and Abdul Nader left last year. It seems like in some of these games, I know. Uh, I'm going to give this to Kevin first because he said something on the group chat today about how Monte's kind of struggled against good competition. What are you seeing from, from Monte, Kevin? And, and what was your – what were, I think I have those stats down, but what was that trend that you were you were seeing with Monte in some of the good quality competition games? Yeah, he's been shooting pretty badly against some of the bigger names like uh, – like Miami, Gonzaga, you know, Cincinnati, even Iowa. Um, it's I think he gets in his mind that, you know, he always all this talk in the offseason about, you know, him needing to be the scorer and the go to guy for Iowa State and I think, you know, he obviously he probably heard some of that and he's thinking, Yeah, well, I it's my senior year, I gotta go out and lead the team and everything but at the same time the thing that made, has made Monte Morris one of the best point guards in the country the last three years is just you know, playing within himself and setting the table for other guys. So I think when he tries to do a little bit too much, that's just not what Monte Morris is best built to do. So, like last night, we saw a lot of him, you know, shooting those those mid-range jumpers or those floaters in the lane. And, you know, lots of times those floaters are a really effective shot, but I think he missed a good, I don't know, three, four, five of those last night. And it was doing that and, you know, pulling up in transition, taking – 16-foot jumpers off the dribble, and it's just those aren't uh, the shots that we've been used to. And, you know, like Tom wrote an article 
uh, a couple of days ago, or I guess might have been yesterday, that, um, you know, it's like we're, Iowa State's all but abandoned the hoi ball uh, shot selection that they've that they've done the last few years. Um, and honestly, like the statistics show that you should be taking a majority of three-point shots or shots, you know, right around the basket. And when you're not doing those things, you're shooting those mid-range numbers. It's just not um, good statistically. So I see a lot of Monte doing that this year. That's kind of frustrating to watch. Yeah. I, um, he's just got to let the game come to himself. That's just kind of like what Kevin's saying. It's, He'll be better on better off if he does that, and, and everybody else will be better off for it. So it's just it's just a matter of him trying not to press as much, and I think hopefully he'll realize that, and then it should lead to more wins down the road here. But you know when he's shooting up, I mean I don't know how many shots he took last night. I think it was 18, and he made four. I mean that's a little excessive, <laughs> especially when you when you know you're off. But you know he might have in that his mindset that he you know if he keeps shooting they're gonna eventually fall, but Sooner or later, you got to realize it's not your night and go to somebody who is on, at least. Um, Austin, I know you're going to talk about this. Maybe I'll jump in front of it. But we've – you know, the narrative with him has shifted to him having to score more. But the further we get into the season, the more and more I'm convinced that's not his role. And and maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention earlier. But I'm starting to wonder if uh, if this team isn't better functioned with Monte – getting 10 points, but also putting up nine assists. Because I think the Morris we've seen has been the Monte trying to score 25. And I, I, personally, I think he's still got a chance to be able to do that. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But, uh, man, it, in, in those games that you mentioned, it just hasn't worked out. So what do you guys think? Do you think that the old version of Morris is better? And I guess, can he even do that on this team? Or do they need more from him? I think he can do I, I think, think the old was, version of Morris will work. It, Sorry, do you want you go? Go for it. I was say I was say that I think the old version of Morris will work fine. I mean, you got a shooter like Matt Thomas or Naz Long or even Deontay Burton. They they can they can get theirs if they can. It's just you know when Morris is just driving in and just throwing it up, it's you know that takes away from potential you know other scoring options where they can move the ball, get open looks for Matt Thomas or Naz Long. I mean. I mean, Nash shot seven for 11 last night and 50% from three-point range. So, I mean, he was, I mean, at least shooting decently. So, I mean, if you, if you can get the ball moving side to side and get some open shots, I mean, those, they'll be there. It's just, I mean, I think it's just him just, like you said, just trying to score a little too much and shoulder that load where, you know, he does have valuable options other than himself that will work, and they've proven to work in the past. I think the, and this isn't to, to beat a dead horse, but the thing that kind of gets lost in the in the shuffle not is, isn't necessarily George Niang's scoring ability last year, but the fact that when Morris, Morris, this is the first year he's played without George, and so effectively when he, every minute that he's played at Iowa State to this point, there have been, you know, two two point guards on the floor with, with Niang and Morris. Now Niang kind of operated out of the paint, obviously, but if you think of a lot of, a lot of the assists that Morris had in the last couple of years, some of them were hockey assists, if you will, from Niang in which the ball got fed to the post. Niang found Morris, and Morris made the extra pass to a wide-open corner three, whereas that ball isn't moving necessarily as much uh, for the rest of the team this year. I think that's I think that's kind of tripping up Morris a little bit. 
Um, the the spacing is a little bit different, but I don't I don't have a problem with him maybe taking the amount of shots that he is sometimes as uh, like it's been mentioned earlier by some of you as to where those shots are. I think there have been a couple times where he's had some some three point chances that I think he could be taking advantage of more. I think he isn't assertive enough on the three point line. I think he's like a 37% shooter so far this year from three uh, and then attacking the rim. But like, like you guys have said, a lot of his shots are coming in that elbow area or uh, as Stephen Howard, I think that was his name last night, the color guy, he kept saying uh, in, in the painted area, he said that about a thousand times, I think, but, they're not they're not close to the rim. He's he's shooting those mid range shots, and I think for for him to be effective, he's got to look to distribute, but then also uh, kind of shoot the way Naz is shooting, uh, as far as taking those three point shots and then attacking at the rim. Because I think Naz Naz long shot chart would tell you that he's taking mostly effective shots. They're either layups or they're three point baskets, and I think that's the reason why he has. Uh, I think he has the top offensive rating on the team right now. If there's nothing to, to add with Monte at this point, I want to talk a little bit about the resume. Um, I think the, the biggest reason why everyone was so maybe upset with the, the loss last night is that it would have been that marquee win that I think uh, would have calmed the calmed the fears of a lot of Cyclones out there as far as missing missing the tournament for the first time in, in five years. So at this point, they have two maybe quality wins, if you will, uh, in Miami and Texas Tech, and I'm defining a quality win as a uh, Ken Palm has a, a level A win, which is a, a top 50 neutral site type of game. So that'd be the Miami win and the Texas Tech game. They're still looking for that that big win over, uh, you know, like a number two Baylor or Kansas. So what are the needs resume-wise, and uh, where do we where do we see them falling at? Uh, come March time at this point. I, I think they're going to have to, you know, win those ones at home like Kansas, West Virginia, and Baylor. They're going to have to win at least two out of three of those. I mean, who knows what can happen in those Big 12 basketball. But, you know, they get two out of three of those for sure. That definitely helps bolster the resume. And then, you know, win at Vanderbilt for sure because you don't really want to drop that one. But And then, you know, steal that kind of that one on the road that you're not supposed to win. Like in previous years, it's been like at West Virginia where, you know, they it's a tough place to play going across the country, but, you know, they've found ways to win that one in the past. And, you know, anyone here from now on in the big 12 really kind of, kind of helps and, you know, try not to lose at Oklahoma where, you know, they're not playing great at all right now either. So, I mean, that's going to be like ones you don't want to drop kind of like what has been in Texas Tech in the past where they've lost there. So, I mean, it would have been nice to nice to win at Baylor. It definitely would have helped, but it's not the end of the world. So, plenty more options out there to get bolster up that resume. I think for me, I'm expecting at this point that there will be, I'm thinking, at least two more losses in Hilton Coliseum. And I, I hate to say that, but I think that's just – what I've seen from this team, I think that's going to be the case. It's probably going to be a a Kansas and a, a Baylor, in my opinion, are going to be two home losses. Even though we just almost beat Baylor on their home court, I think that they're going to come back and know, you know, a better job. And we're not probably going to quite shoot. We're not going to shoot quite as well from three-point range or, you know, something will go wrong. But um, 
I think the thing that'll truly improve Iowa State's resume is they need to pick up, you know, a, a win on the road, a good win, not against you know some of the bottom tier teams, but at least a mid tier team, uh, a win or two there, or you know a big one like knock off Kansas and Allen Fieldhouse, which would be amazing. Probably not going to happen, but you know a win like that would be the marquee win that Iowa State currently lacks. So, um, like I said, I think we'll lose a couple at home, and we're just going to you know be better on the road than we have been in prior years. All right. At this point, um, we got one more one more topic here. Um, looking at Twitter last night, uh, you'll see you'll see mentions as as Baylor trots out there, you know, six eleven, seven foot, six ten, front line, and Iowa State's kind of undermanned when it comes to size. Uh, the the popular commentary on Twitter is uh, Prom needs to to recruit big guys. He needs big guys that that can shoot and like uh, the, the guys never thought of it before uh, and it's kind of a, a unicorn out there in college basketball is that there's only so many seven footers in this world uh, you know only a fraction of those are able to actually play uh, and then most of those end up at your Dukes and Kansases and things like that but good news uh, in, in Cyclone country is that Cameron Lard sounds like he's going to be eligible and in Ames on Saturday this weekend. Uh, so my question to you is, uh, what is it? What does this mean? And I think the the biggest question is, is he going to be able to help this year's team, or is this uh, this is a project for next year's team? Well, the way it, the way it looks right now, it's a project for next year's team. But nothing would surprise me to see him out in the court. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's just status quo right now for me that. He'll be on the next year's team and help him contribute, but right now, all signs point to him not being on the floor this year. I'm still not convinced Cameron Lard's a real person. So until I see him with my own two eyes, then you know, I think he's a fake. <laughs> I think that's happened to Iowa State before. Yeah, something like that. What was that? Like Ivan Churi asked. What was that guy's name? I don't. I don't think Emmanuel Malou is a real person. Oh, there you go. That's true. Or, uh, we're, we're let's see, the, West, uh, Wesley, Wesley Staten, the four-star guard who committed and decommitted to Iowa State three times under Jamie under uh, Greg, Greg McDermott. Tell me someone remembers Wesley Staten. <laughs> I, re- I remember the name. Where did he end up? Do we know? Sioux City West, I think he ended up at a junior college in Arizona. I don't even think he went division like division three. Sounds about right uh, for the McDermott era. Yeah, that does. Who no, are, I think who was, are, uh, I think huh? Who are some of the who are some of the other big big recruits that we have a, a man, Emmanuel Malou, uh Cameron Lard, uh Kevin says isn't isn't real, so we'll we'll find out on Saturday this weekend, uh, Chiriav, uh, Wesley State. Who are some of the? There was a couple other ones. Seemed like in that uh, Wayne Morgan era that were big time recruits that never never ended up. Any any of them come to mind for any? I like there was to one actually. Those years. There was one actually more <laughs> recent than that. Um, 
Norvell Pell. Does anyone remember him? Yeah, ah, yeah. Big Norvell. Not yeah, a real he person. Fell way off. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I thought he was definitely coming. Right. I was pretty excited for that one. <laughs> I was too. Oh, how I was mistaken. All right. At, at this point, I think uh, what I the way I want to wrap it up is uh, I want a, uh, a prediction for we aren't going to really maybe analyze it. We, we're kind of running out of time here, but I want a prediction for uh, Saturday's game against Texas and then maybe uh, a prediction for rec conference record. They stand at one and one right now, 18 conference games. Prediction for Saturday and then where you see them ending up in the Big 12. And uh, we'll start we'll start with you, Matt. Prediction for Saturday, I think Iowa State gets it done. I know uh, Texas has looked a little bit better, but I still don't trust that team. And actually, Iowa State has had some pretty good success with them. That was me knocking on wood, if you couldn't tell. Um, I think I think Iowa State has had some pretty good success against Texas, and I, I think they'll get the win. Um, I, I fully expect a guy like Monte Morris and Deontay Burton to bounce back. Um, conference record, oh, boy. Um I think Iowa State's going to hold on and get 10 wins. Um, I think they're going to win a few games on the road that they maybe shouldn't. Uh, Iowa State's done that in the past, but I think uh, 10 and 8 is my conference record prediction. I think that I'm in the exact same boat that Maddie is, and I hate to give the exact same answer, but I was right when he was talking, I was like, yep, it's going to be 10 and 8, and I think we're going to squeak it out against Texas. I think it'll be a probably somewhere in the five to 10 point range. So, um, and also I want to give a shout out to, uh, we have our, our local wide right now, uh, Texan commenter, bitter white guy will be in town. So hopefully he has a good time in Ames and doesn't freeze his ass off. Um, hopefully no one takes the Hickory Park. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'll end up there. <laughs> um, I was going to go with, um, uh, we beat Texas sixty-nine to fifty-nine, nice. Nice. And we <laughs> we get we get twelve wins in conference. Not to not to go with the same answer, but I'm going optimistic. Boy, that's a nice prediction. <laughs> wow. Nice. I you know twelve wins at this point. If you think about how how deep the Big Twelve conference is, to get twelve wins, that would that's something that. Uh, you know, last year's team went ten and eight, and they were a four seed. I think the year before they were what eleven and seven, maybe they're twelve and six. I'm not sure. Uh, and got a three seed, twelve and six uh, the, with the types of wins that that would include. That would uh, that'd be ramping them back up in there in those uh, you know four or five seed range. I would I would have to imagine. And even even with my prediction, which is uh, the the nine and nine, I think that'll be good enough to, to not only get in the tournament, but depending on what nine wins those are, uh, that might, that might get them up into that, that seven range. Um, I think there's, there's a, there's a fine line between being on the bubble and getting up into that seven win range. We've seen the selection committee do some kind of questioning or questionable seating tactics with some of these teams. I think if Iowa state can get to nine and nine, but, you know, have a, a win against Kansas, a win against West Virginia, and possibly beating Baylor. If those they can knock one of the or each of those teams off at least once, I think that's a that's a big difference between a, a ten and eight in which they 
um, lost all of those games. So, uh, anything else that, that we need to add tonight, gentlemen? Bold prediction, we're going to win the next three games to show, set up a big showdown with Kansas. <laughs> I love the optimism. All right. Well, Matias is over there chugging, chugging Kool-Aid, so we'll let him uh, – We'll let him get back to, to brewing up some more of that. Um, for the rest of us, we'll uh, look forward to, to talking to you again. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Uh, leave us a review in the in the iTunes and also maybe on the blog. Also, uh, a special shout-out to Jake McDonough for allowing us to use his tune here uh, on the podcast to bring us in and, and take us out. Uh, this is Austin signing off for, for Kevin, Matias, and Matt. Have a good one. Peace. This summer, wherever you're heading in the great outdoors, make your first stop the Home Depot for off deep woods or active sweat-proof bug spray. Right now, get any three for just 10 bucks in your backyard or in the woods. If it's long-lasting protection you want or sweat-proof performance you need, when off goes on, bugs go away. Stock up now on off deep woods or active bug spray, three for just 10 bucks. Only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing while supplies last. by any of the 108 Atlanta area O'Reilly Auto Parts stores where you'll find everyday low prices on the parts you need to keep your vehicle at its best. Our guaranteed low prices ensure you're always getting our best deal. In fact, we'll match any auto parts store's price on any like item. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Oh, oh, oh.